Okay, turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We are beginning to make our way through the core values. And we're going to look at, with a little help from Jesus, we're going to look at three of them. Meekness, hunger for righteousness, and mercy. I'll just say right off the top that uh, as I went back and looked at the messages I've preached over the last five years, last seven years, um, I have entire series on each of these topics. Probably 10 to 15 messages on the subject of meekness and, um, and have spent multiple uh, hours teaching on meekness, righteousness, and mercy. What's interesting to me is a couple points. Number one, every time I approach, it's any topic in the Word, because the Word is alive, the Word is Jesus, and, and, and He speaks to us through the Word, the Lord continues to unveil truths every time I come to the Scripture and allow the Lord to speak. I think that's an amazing existence that we've got a living God who speaks through his living word. You know, you've been in the word, many of you have been in the word years and years. And every time you open the scripture, you'll see something that you, you, never, you never noticed before. And you've read it hundreds of times maybe. And so those of you that are just starting out, I tell you, you have a, you have a great journey of discovery before you in Revelation and the scripture. And and like I said, having preached hours on these topics, I, again, am confronted with new truth, fresh thoughts that I've never had before, and it's the Lord breathing through the spirit of revelation. So I pray that he would release that this morning. Second point, which is the one that's got a little sharp, sharp point on it, a little sharp aha on it. No matter, it just seems to me, no matter what, when you're actually teaching the word, and studying the word, it just seems like the, the, the more you go, the more you need. You know, the more you, you understand, the more you, 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 you're required to, to live it out. And, and it's, uh, it's a challenge. I'll just say it on a personal note. It's a challenge for me to preach these topics that I'm so f- uh, familiar with from the simple vantage point of this, that I recognize the disparity in my own heart over them. And so I'm not going to overstate that point because I'm not looking for sympathy, uh, but I'm, I'm, what I'm doing is confessing to you real conviction that's in my own heart over these issues. And I'm praying for the Lord to continue to conform me to the image of Christ, that these truths would become more and more resident. The, the bright side is I can look five and ten years in the past and I think, wow, I've definitely moved forward from where I was, but oh, I got a lot, I got a lot to learn, you know, a lot, a lot more to go. So with that in mind, let's look at Matthew chapter five and let's deal with these issues of the core values and let's believe the Holy Spirit to help us this morning, just to bring us into fellowship with Jesus So Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The concept that the meek would inherit the earth is biblically established by the psalmist. Multiple times mentioned that the meek will inherit, they'll have an inheritance of the earth. That's not figurative, that's not... A nice poetic phrase, that's reality, that's the status of things. Those who live in meekness in this age have an inheritance in the next, and that inheritance is governance of the earth. Firmly established in in the Old Testament theology and clearly depicted in Jesus' first sermon. The meek will inherit the earth in the sense of they will govern it with the Lord. So you're... The level of meekness you, you display that you, that you live in this age has much to do with your job in the next age, your job description. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. One of my favorite points about the Sermon on the Mount is this, that when we're studying these core values, they're not simply, uh, you know, good attitudes, be attitudes. They're not simply nice concepts. They're actually, they're the value system of the kingdom, but more than that, they're Jesus' own personal value system. And so when we're studying these values, we're actually studying Jesus. And we can, I tell you, you can move into deep fellowship with the Lord over the truths that are explained in the, just the values of the kingdom, just in the core values here. Because each one of these blessings that's pronounced upon believers, it's because they are now living a, a reality that is who Christ is himself. It's, it's because they are actually entering into conformity to Christ. They are knowing him and embracing him and then living the very values of his own heart. So blessed are the meek. One of the key reasons is because Jesus is meek and you're finding him in that and you're embracing it yourself and then you're living it out. And that to me is so tender. This is not simply a rule book. This is Christ. It's not simply a list of do's and don'ts. This is what's important. It's what he values. It's what he's like. And if you'll just, just slow it down, we love to run through the verses and you know, just, just spout them out. If you could just slow it down and you allow these verses to resonate on your soul, the transformation, the power of transformation that's packed in the scriptures, it's limitless. All right, let's look at meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I'll give you a simple definition of meekness. It's one I've used for about five years. Meekness. Faithfully cultivating a servant's heart in order to attain the benefit of others above ourselves in regard to honor, privilege, and position. I'll give it to you again. Faithfully cultivating a servant's heart in order to attain the benefit of others above ourselves in regard to honor, privilege, and position. Meekness has much to do with what we're admonished by Paul in Philippians, and it's considering others better than yourself. Now, most of us have the challenge of, you know, sort of having to work that muscle. We've got to sort of remember, oh yeah, I'm supposed to treat them better than myself. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to look at them as better than myself. And the tension is this, that um, as long as we're having to make the choice, now it's nothing wrong with having to make the choice, and if you make the choice to be meek, that's awesome. But the tension is, as long as you're having to make the choice to be meek, the truth remains that you're actually still not meek, and you're trying to flex the meekness muscle. Does that make sense? There's a difference between the guy who is meek and who knows what meekness really looks like. A vast difference. And I've encountered a few folks that really are meek and they don't have to remember to be humble they just are whereas you know me sometimes I come across meek but sometimes I come across really not meek (laughs) sometimes I come across really full of myself and it's in those moments I go oh I've got to be meek and there in my confession I've got to be meek is like really I'm saying I'm arrogant oh where's the meekness muscle and the Lord goes, I have a really, I, will, I have no problem helping you to become meek. He actually gives you the same gift. If you ask for patience, if you ask for meekness, he's got the same gift for you. Your prayer for patience and your prayer for meekness will be met with trials and tribulations. Amen. He goes, I love it. You want to be patient? No problem. Here's some problems. Help you to be patient. 
You want to be meek? No problem. I am going to put some people in your life that will tap dance on your last nerve until you decide that they are more important than you. This journey of meekness, I tell you, oh, there's, it's nothing so incinerating to the flesh. We have the nature before Christ. We have the nature of the devil. The core reality of the devil was his own arrogance. He got puffed up in his own beauty. And you and I, before we're born again, and it's the status of the old man that we fight against to put off in Christ, the core reality is arrogance. Thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. Positioning ourselves in the best place. Getting the best thing for ourselves. Not considering others, but considering ourselves first. American arrogance is summed up in so many phrases. The one that jumps to mind first for me is look out for number one. Because meekness actually looks out for others above themselves. Meekness on display is God becoming a man, humiliating himself by becoming a man. That, that is unthinkable. That, that, that movement, that incarnation, what happened in Bethlehem on that day... When God is a man, that he would put on flesh and become one who sweats, who speaks with a mouth, who walks with feet on the ground, who is subject to natural laws, subject to the sun, subject to the wind, subject to the rain, subject to others, God Subject to hunger, subject to, you know, headaches, pain, natural causes and, and effects. And he, he subjects himself to, let's not even deal with the cross for a minute. He just subjects himself to simple humanity, the frailty of humanity. God, the uncreated God, puts on flesh. What happened in that moment, beloved, had he never done the cross... That would have been the most shocking example of meekness. And then he continues to take it further. He allows humanity to judge, to decide about him. He allows people the opportunity to listen or not, to believe or not, to follow or not. He allows people to engage with him or not. He's God. And he gives humanity the choice of saying yes to him or not. Jesus, <laughs> that he would not come as a dictator and demand full allegiance in every you know, possible decision, it's the most shocking idea. Think about it. You've got many heads of companies, businesses, governments. They walk in the room and they demand full respect every minute, every moment. Valets serving them. Everything is to be brought on a silver platter. They're human. Jesus comes and says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give. My life is a ransom for all. And so when he calls us to meekness, this is, look, this is not some deal where sort of the main guy doesn't do it and then he calls everybody else to do what he's, you know, the, you know do as I say, not as I do. This is, I've done it to the highest extent you can imagine. I'm asking you to become like me. I'm, ask, I'm inviting you in. I'm inviting you into who I am at heart. And for me, the bottom line is, the issue of meekness, the issue of meekness is the glue that holds all the core values together. It's, it's the one that if you don't have that one, all the others will unravel. 
You can't, you can't really believe that you're poor in spirit unless you have a measure of meekness. You won't be merciful unless you're living in meekness. You won't hunger for righteousness unless you've got meekness in you. At the end of the day, unless meekness is working in your heart, you won't do any of the values of the kingdom. Unless meekness is working in your heart, you will not pray. You won't look to God ever. Meekness is so, so critical. I was looking through the notes of the messages I've preached over the last several years, and probably intimacy with God is the number one topic, and the number two topic is meekness. The issue of meekness. It can't be overstated. I could do a 52-week series on it, and we wouldn't be touching it yet. Honestly. Meekness, cultivating a servant's heart, just like Jesus, in order to attain the benefit of others above ourselves, just like Jesus, in regard to honor, privilege, and position. Now here's the thing. When we suffer in arrogance, when we live out of pride and arrogance, one of the, one of the main reasons is we, lock, we, we uh, lack proper perspective. If you have proper perspective on the state of things, you will not live in the folly of arrogance and conceit. And what do I mean by proper perspective? I mean this. If you understand how weak and how frail we really are, if you understand the, the, the expanse of our inability, huh, how little we can actually accomplish without God. If you get the proper perspective on who and what you are without Him, you won't live long in the folly of of conceit and arrogance. One one of the key things that we, we browse over is the issue of our sin. The filth of our sin and our inability and the dramatic mercy the incredible mercy that the Lord has, has bestowed on us in Christ, that he would, he would pass over our sins, sacrifice his son so we could be clean and be his. Our filth and our sin, it, it puts Jesus on the cross. When you consider the incredible value of the sacrifice, it lets you know the incredible filth and depth of our destitution. When you understand how severe the penalty was and and how how valuable the payment had to be, then we can possibly get the right perspective that we are absolutely destroyed. It's what Isaiah said. He goes, oh, I'm cut off. I'm destroyed. When we get the proper perspective on who we are and what we actually have to offer, What are you going to give? Some of us are worried about like, say, like, what do I give my grandma for Christmas? She's got everything. What do you give the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? I love this story I heard a preacher tell. There were several men and there was a couple of ambassadors and there was a, several men that were going to go meet this this king of a foreign country, true story. And, and the, uh, the minister was there and he didn't, he didn't know the protocol. He was invited in to meet the, the king, but he had no idea what the protocol was. And, and these other ambassadors, three or four or five of them showed up and they had these incredible gifts. I mean, just, I mean, just beautiful items from the treasuries of their countries. And this minister showed up and he didn't have a gift. And he saw the others going in one at a time. And he, he said, oh my God, I, did, I didn't bring a gift. And there's the steward there that manages the affairs of the king. He said, hey, he goes, what, what, do, I, what do I do? I, I, I didn't bring a gift. And he said, oh, 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 it's not the gift he's after. It's the gesture of humility. He doesn't need anything you have. He just wants you 
to bring something. And he, and he's, he goes, well, what do I do? He said, take off your tie and offer it to the king as a gift. That'll do. And this minister explains how he walks in. He's got his tie off his own neck in his hands. He walks in and his eyes look at the king and the king is smiling. And he, he offers the tie and the king says, oh, what a precious gift. I don't have another like it. Thank you. And brings him in. He talks about how he was trembling and his heart was, was melting because he was so unprepared to meet the king. Listen, guys, we've got no gift to offer the king. He's not looking for our performance. He's looking for the one thing that he doesn't have dominion over. It's the heart of men. You come, you can't give him anything. You can't produce anything. You can't perform anything. But you come, you say, here I am. He says, oh, it's beautiful. I don't have another heart like it. Perspective. Proper perspective will cause you to live running away from arrogance and embracing meekness. And I tell you, beloved, the perspective that we need is that we are nothing, we have nothing, we can do nothing, nothing, nothing without the king. We have nothing we can give him, nothing to offer him, and He's the most humble one there is. You know that feeling you get when you're having lunch or dinner with somebody who's like in great shape? You go to the restaurant and you're like, I'll have a double hamburger with cheese and supersize it and uh, let me get a Coke and a, yeah, let me get a large shake with that. Can you put extra chocolate in there? Good. And the guy goes, oh, I'd like a grilled chicken salad, leave off the cheese and the bacon, and a water. No lemon. And you just start getting, you're going, oh. You're convicted. Beloved, this is our state. Jesus, the most humble one ever. Us. Bound to our arrogance. Get perspective and, and run into the invitation of meekness. It's humility. Meekness is humility, but it's with the recognition that you're afflicted. It's with the recognition that you're broken. It's with the recognition that you're poverty stricken. You're, it's humble because of your affliction. Humble because of your recognition of need. What is it to offer a life of 70 or 80 years as an offering of humility to everyone else because the king is humble and this is your gift? 70 or 80 years of humility. It's nothing. Look at Matthew 11. This was just tearing me up today. I want to make it. In 11.25, he says, you got to be like babes. Babes are the ones that receive the revelation. Children receive the revelation. He goes, Father, thank you. He goes, thank you for how you lead, Father. He goes, you've blinded the minds of those that think they're wise and you've revealed the mysteries of the kingdom to babes, these little fishermen. Oh, you see, Jesus, I love how you lead, Father. And then he goes to, and he says this to the fishermen. He goes, come to me, come to me. All you labor and are heavy laden. He goes, I'm gonna give you rest it's rest for your souls I'm going to give you. Because I'm going to do something for you that's going to help your soul get rest and get invigorated. Here's what I'm going to do for you. I want to give you my yoke. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He goes, I'm going I'm to saddle you with my saddle. I'm offering it to you. I'm offering my saddle to you. Take it on you and learn about how I am. Because I am gentle. And I am humble. God in the flesh, His instruction to you and I is to saddle up with Him, to get yoked with Him and learn what He's like because God in the flesh who comes as a servant and not as a dictator, who comes as a lamb the first time and not as the lion yet, God in the flesh who comes as the sacrifice, just learn from me. I'm gentle. And I'm humble. I'm gentle and I'm meek. I'm just trying to imagine myself there that day with the disciples and Jesus is saying, I'm so excited, God, that you didn't use the most qualified. I'm so excited that you didn't use, you know, the biggest names. I'm so excited, God, that you used these broken down little fishermen. I love how you leave, Abba. I love it. And oh, let me help you guys out. He goes, saddle up with me the way I'm saddled up with the Father. He goes, I only do what the Father tells me to do. What is that? It's humility in the Godhead. I only say what I hear the Father say. I only do His will. He goes, saddle up with me and learn from me because I'm gentle with everyone and I'm humble in my heart. And here's the point. If you will embrace gentleness, tenderheartedness, and humility, your soul will find a place of rest. And here's why. You won't spend endless hours trying to posture, trying to look to other, look, uh, look like before others that you're something that you're not. You won't work to keep up all the externals, trying to look like somebody who's arrived, somebody who's special, somebody who's got a, you know, a name. You won't worry about any of that. You'll just serve and bless. You'll be gentle and kind and you'll be meek. He goes, and your soul won't have the turmoil that it has in it now. Rest in your soul has everything to do with whether or not you're willing to put off the yoke of arrogance and take on the yoke of meekness. Much of our worry, much of our striving, much of our activity in the flesh has to do with our own arrogance, trying to look like something before somebody to measure up to some standard that somebody put on us. He goes, learn from me. Can you imagine Jesus looking you in the eye and going, learn from me. I'm gentle. It literally means I'm tender and I'm humble. I'm meek and lowly. I'm gentle and lowly. I'm tender and humble. And that word for lowly, it's the poverty. It's the word to describe somebody who's poverty stricken. It's literally a word that, that gives description of the beggar who lives in the, in the street, who is face down in the dirt. He goes, you have no concept of what it's cost me to become a man. You have no idea. You have almost nothing to equate it to. But let me give you a, a little bit of perspective. I've made myself like a beggar in the dirt to you. God. He made himself of no reputation. This is it, beloved. This is where the rubber meets the road in the kingdom. You want the kingdom to come in your life? Meekness must come in your life. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is it. I tell you, our maturity in Christ... It's, it's, it's never greater than our meekness in Christ. I don't care what the conquest in the kingdom is. I don't care how many people got blessed or healed or 
what the numbers are, what the sphere is. I don't care about any of that. Are you meek and lowly in heart like he is? It's a tragedy. Let me just say this. It's a tragedy in the United States that we see success in ministry and it's full of arrogance. That's so unlike Christ. That's so unlike Jesus. Blessed are the meek. You can almost hear him just insert, because you're just like me. Because you're going to inherit the earth just like me. All right, let's keep going. Matthew 5, verse 6. I should give the altar call now, right? Let's just stop for a moment. Let's just wait a minute. Just put your hand over your heart for a minute. Lord, we want to be meek like you. We see how far away we are. We want to be meek like you. Help us. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, you see, this is not just another Bible study. This is Christ. This is Christ conforming us to his image. That's what this sermon was about. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I want to just admit that I don't know as much about this verse. I don't know as much about any of them, but this one is just, I need to know more about it. I, I, I feel the, different, the uh, distance in my soul between what I feel like I, the Lord has revealed to me and what can be revealed. But I will say this. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, oftentimes this verse is yanked out of context. We use this verse to talk about sort of getting a touch from God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, and we say, for God, for they shall be filled. But that is not at all what he's talking about. He's talking about having a a craving in your soul to live clean. (laughs) To live clean. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. See, our God is a consuming fire. He's the perfection of holiness. And what he tells us is, he will impart this, that, this holiness to us. He'll release it to us. In fact, when we say yes to Jesus, he reckons us righteousness because of faith. And then we go on a journey into righteousness, we call that sanctification. It happens instantly and over time, righteousness. And so he goes, I want you to live your life with a craving and a longing and a desire, a pang on the inside to be burning with righteousness. And what that equals is this, holiness imparted To the believer, manifest in the beauty of holiness, righteousness lived out in the life. When you find, here it is, when you find a Christian who's truly saying yes to holiness, and I'm I'm not talking about external, this is not about the external issue. This is about the internal yes that denies sin and lust and temptation. But when you find a Christian who's saying yes to holiness, there is a blazing fire, a beauty that comes on them. It's called righteousness. They look beautiful. beautiful. They're beautified and you see it. You see it on them. He talked about this in in Isaiah where he said, I'm going to beautify you. I'm going to make you like a a diadem in the hand of the king. I'm going to make you beautiful in holiness. This, beloved, is one of the portions of the church that we would be a people who don't just sort of... I I mean, I want what God does for us, but I want... I, I don't want to seek Him for just what He does. I want to seek Him for Him, and I want what He is to 
possess me. I want the beauty and the fire, the glory, the purity, the purity of him to possess me. So that there's something, there's a quality coming off of me where, you know, the guy is, you know, he's around you and he feels a little different. Hey, there's something different about, I want that, that righteousness, that robe of righteousness to clothe me. Where I don't even have to say a thing, but I can just be there and, and you, you, the conviction of the Spirit's there because he feels something different. There's a beauty of holiness happening. I've had that happen in, in little glimpses. I, I'll tell you two. I, I'll tell you one good and one bad. But I remember one time I was at a, a, getting my hair cut. A friend of mine had... He had uh, encouraged me. He goes, hey, I'm ministering to this guy. and Go get your hair cut. He said, he's struggling with homosexuality. Go get your hair cut by him and, and see if the Lord will give you an opportunity to minister to him. And so I remember sitting there and, and I'm in the chair and this guy he goes, now who, who, who referred you? I said, oh, my buddy. He goes, oh, I love him. He's a great guy. And he's talking to me and he's, he is talking freely. He is saying every word in the book. He's dropping F-bombs like, like we're in a war. I mean, it's just... It's just intense, and I'm just smiling. I'm not acting anything. I'm just talking. Oh wow, wow, okay. And, he, and, and fifteen minutes into the haircut, he goes. He just looks at me funny. He goes, "Now, who'd you say uh, referred you to me?" I said, "Oh, my, my buddy." I go, "He and I work together." He goes, "You guys work at the church together?" And I went, "Yeah." He goes, "I knew something didn't feel right every time." I'd say something. I knew it didn't feel right. It's, oh, I'm so sorry. Hey, no, no, no. Be free. Do, do what you do. Do what you do. Sinner, hey, listen. We've got to learn sinners sin. They're really good at it. We just, we don't need to condemn them. We just need to, you know, call them to something different. He goes, oh, I'm so sorry. He goes, I, feel, he goes, I could feel something wrong. And I felt like maybe that's the Lord. You know, the, the, the presence of the Lord. The, that's the, the beauty of holiness. Touching him and convicting him before I even said a word. I remember another time though. I'm in a, I'm in a restaurant and I'm in, I'm literally in pain. I'm weeping because I'm, I'm in recognition of this. If the living Christ is inside of me, yet everyone around me can be drinking, smoking, cussing without any recognition of the resurrection inside of me, there's a problem. I remember breaking down and literally beginning to weep in a restaurant because there was no change that I brought to the place. But I tell you, beloved, there comes a time where sin, we actually see it for what it is. We actually see Jesus for who he is. And the allure of sin becomes so foul. It becomes so rotten. It becomes so rancid before us, we just, we're just repelled by, by the, the, even the temptation to sin. We go, oh no, I want to burn. I want to be beautiful for him. I want to be beautiful in righteousness. I want the righteousness of God to possess my soul. Hungering for righteousness. It's not legalism. It's not judgmentalism. It's burning for Jesus. Not allowing any compromise, not allowing any, you know, side issue to steal. Now here's the thing. Living righteously will escort you into the last value of the kingdom. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. (laughs) You live righteously. I'm not talking about being obnoxious or judgmental or condemning. You live righteously. And eventually, somebody's not going to like that. So there's a massive reward. If you're hungering for righteousness, you'll be filled with fire. But there's also a price to pay. If you hunger for righteousness, you will be persecuted. I just want to mention this little side note. It's very likely the reason why the church in America lacks persecution is because she lacks righteousness. Righteousness is the the beauty of holiness in the life, living it out day to day, walking in the Sermon on the Mount. But I want to mention this. It's not primarily about how you look before people. 
In fact, Jesus disqualifies that in Matthew 6. He goes, if you do your righteous acts before men to be seen by them, you've lost your reward. So in 5, he says, hunger for righteousness, but don't do righteous works to get men's approval. You lose your reward. And so he clarifies the whole point. He says, righteousness, the reality of righteousness is an inner life with a heart that's fully given to God. And you're actually doing works of righteousness for the pleasure of God rather than the praise of men. And that's how we live day in and day out. That's how we're to live day in and day out. The inner reality of God's love burning in our hearts, calling us to reject ungodliness and unrighteousness, causing temptation to look rancid and saying, yes, yes, I want to be possessed with what you are possessed with. I want to be burning with holiness and I want to be clothed with the beauty of holiness. All right, let's move on to mercy. We'll land here. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mercy is simply operating in a kind and gentle spirit toward those who do not deserve it. Here's the thing. You cannot operate in mercy unless you have somebody there who is deserving of judgment. Come on now. Think this through. Mercy requires that you're offering kindness to someone who deserves judgment. The Lord had mercy upon you and I. Because we deserved judgment. Yet, because of his great love with which he loved us, he's lavished mercy on us in Christ. God who is rich in mercy. God who delights to do mercy. One of the coolest things about God, he gets excited about being merciful. It's, it's, it's the picture of the, of the kind king who has the subject, who has wronged him, yet he extends mercy. So mercy is offered when someone deserves judgment. And this is where it just, it just fillets my heart because I just have to deal with this. And I go, how often am I merciful to the person who deserves judgment? How often am I merciful to the person who really has wronged me? who really has done something wrong, how often am I kind and tenderhearted and generous? And that will determine how often you're merciful. Now here's the the thing about mercy. You receive mercy to the measure that you give mercy. The Lord says to, to be merciful, and the thing about it is, whoever withholds mercy... It says, the judgment of God will be without mercy upon that one. That's tough. How merciful are you? The judgment of God is without mercy upon the one who withholds mercy. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. And so then he says, here's the standard by which you know how and when to offer mercy. Luke 6, verse 36. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. How often and when should you be merciful? Just how often and and when the Father is. I heard one groan and one, uh, two groans. We'll give it two groans. We offer mercy as the Father. That's the standard. And Jesus tells us the parable of the, the steward that, that owed money. And he said, 
He said, have mercy, have mercy. And he owed a ton of money, have mercy. And, and, and the, uh, the owner, he said, okay, you, you know, have mercy on you. And then the steward goes to a guy that owes him a lot less money. He goes, pay it all up. And the owner comes back and he, he rebukes that steward. And he says, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow steward the way that I had mercy on you? Beloved, that's the word to us. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow human, on your fellow believer, on your fellow person, the way that the Lord has had mercy on you? You know, sometimes in church and in ministry, people will categorize people. They'll say, well, that person, they're, you know, they're really high maintenance. And they use little terms, say, extra grace required or something like that. You know what that is? That's not about the person being high maintenance. That's about you being merciless. And the Lord giving you the opportunity to offer mercy and kindness to a place that you wouldn't ordinarily go. It's not the weak that has the problem. It's the supposed strong that has the problem. There's a lot of merciless activity toward people who are weak that is going to be not good when it's judged on the day of judgment. Because he says, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant the way that I had mercy on you? You know what the enemy of mercy is? Self-righteousness. We hunger for his righteousness, but sometimes when we start to sort of start doing good in God, we start thinking somehow the righteousness is of ourself, like we're the one that's produced it. We forget the activity of grace. We forget that grace has instructed our hearts to deny ungodliness. We forget that God imparts righteousness to us. If we say yes, he actually puts the burning in our heart to desire him. Somehow we, we forget God's activity and we just sort of think it's us. We've become righteous. And what happens is when you ascribe the 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 authorship of righteousness in your own heart, when you ascribe it to yourself, you sort of get puffed up in your own self-righteousness. And the self-righteous person, I tell you what, so, so often they sort of deputize themselves as the one who can judge everyone else. Self-righteousness is the great enemy of mercy and the self-righteous almost never regards the weak. Quick to judge, slow to hear. It's self-righteous. Sizing it up before you've heard all sides. Self-righteous. I tell you, the Lord wants a merciful people who are in recognition of the mercy that's been extended to them. If you understand how merciful He's been to you, how can you be judgmental? Now, I'm not saying that we should, should never judge. There is a place for righteous judgment. And there's a tension that exists between being kind and merciful and actually moving in righteous judgment. It's a challenge. But so often, you know, we get to the place where we quit cussing, we don't watch any R-rated movies, and now we're this self-righteous self-deputized person who, who imagines we've got mastery and spiritual disciplines and, and then for, therefore we're justified to pass judgment on others all the time. I'm telling you what, self-righteousness stinks in the nostrils of God. That condemning, angry-spirited, merciless heart towards the weak Self-righteous, it's not Christ. It's not Christ. We call people out of sin. We call them into holiness. We call them out of compromise. And we do it with a broken heart of contrition, looking to ourselves. You find one that's fallen in sin. He says, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, looking to yourself. That self-righteous, judgmental attitude. 
It's in opposition to the Spirit of Christ. And so often, that self-righteousness, it's, that, it parades in this religious you know, veneer with religious sounding words and, and, and practicing this religious pros, posture. And, and, and here's, here's where it boils down to. You may, not, you may say, I've never you know, been in a situation where I just out and out judge somebody. But the question really isn't if you ever were in the activity of judging somebody. The question is, what are the internal judgments you carry towards others? You don't have to do the judge and jury thing in a court or in some kind of you know, church discipline action. You, all you have to do is do the judge and jury thing in your own heart. Here's what mercy is supposed to produce in us. God's mercy extended to us is, number one, supposed to produce gratitude. Where you're just, you're just blown away. I mean, you, you should get blown away regularly about how awesome and merciful he is and how, like, ridiculous you are. I mean, just, I mean there's so often I'm in prayer and I'm like, oh, this is so crazy. Just the fact that you even like me is amazing, but, like, you've done so much more than like me. This is just dumb. It's awesomely dumb. I mean, it's, it doesn't compute is what I mean. I'm not saying God's dumb. I'm saying, like, I can't fathom it because I am so ridiculous so broken, so perverse, and he's so kind. He's so good. Mercy, you should just be going, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. New mercies every morning. This is awesome. Oh, I'm so thankful. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. This is great. And with gratitude, let your heart just overflow with thanksgiving because he's been merciful to you. And then secondly, in gratitude, with a grateful heart of the mercy that's been extended to you, extend mercy to others. You receive mercy to be a channel of mercy. I love what the Lord calls Himself. He says, He's the God of all comforts and the Father of mercies, that He comforts you who have been afflicted so that you can comfort others with the same comfort that you've, you've received. Mercy extended to us causes gratitude to well up in us and it causes mercy to flow through us. Always in recognition of the mercy that he's given us. Always in recognition of the cross. Blessed are the merciful because you're going to receive mercy. He's merciful. It's what he's like. We're to be like that too. Blessed are the meek they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. Amen.